The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 46 to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song for Alamot. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, just as at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. All right, here we are. Numbers 36, the last chapter of the book of Numbers, and we're going to finish the whole chapter today. Thus, we will be done with the book of Numbers today. Numbers 36, 1 through 13, this is entitled, The Inheritance of Zelophehad. Now the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the chief fathers of the children of Israel. And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. Now if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers, and it will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken from the lot of our inheritance." And when the jubilee of the children of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. Then Moses commanded the children of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, saying, What the tribe of the sons of Joseph speaks is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry whom they think best, but they may marry only within the family of their father's tribe. So the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe, for every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife of one of the family of her father's tribe, so that the children of Israel each may possess the inheritance of his father's. Thus no inheritance shall change hands from one tribe to another, but every tribe of the children of Israel shall keep its own inheritance. Just as the Lord commanded Moses, so did the daughters of Zelophehad. 
For Mala, Tirza, Hogla, Milka, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to the sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the families of the children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's family. These are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded the children of Israel by the hand of Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. It sounds like a really complicated set of verses, doesn't it? And it is. It's not going to be an easy sermon to grasp the first time, just like last week, but it'll probably be a little bit easier than last week is my guess. Can anybody here tell me what this is referring to and why the Lord put this chapter here and what he is trying to tell us? If so, I want you to come up and give the sermon. I I asked all of you to read this chapter and to think about it this week. Did anybody do that? Nobody read the chapter and thought about it. I know you did because you wrote down to do it. Well, I did. You did write it down. You just didn't do it. Okay, there you go. All right. Does anybody else, before I start, does anybody else need a copy of the sermon? I got lots of extra copies. No? Okay. Would you like one? No? Okay. I got plenty of copies. I just printed like 20 instead of, I don't know why I hit the wrong button. So, all right. We have 13 verses before us to close out the book of Numbers. In these 13 verses, the idea of an inheritance is mentioned 17 times. The inheritance, then, is an obviously important point that the Lord wants us to consider. And although this deals with only one family and one tribe, it actually possibly affects the inheritance of all of the people of Israel. This is because it is a conditional thing that could occur in any family or to any person in Israel. This is even more so because the concept doesn't just deal with a person who dies without having any sons. It would extend to a person who lost all his sons in battle. It would extend to a person whose only son was run over by a speeding donkey or whose son fell off a cliff on a hike from Jericho to Jerusalem. If any inheritance could likewise be called into question, then it actually means that every inheritance could be called into question. This is because we cannot see the day ahead of us. Not one person in Israel, even if he had 70 sons, could be sure all 70 of them would be alive the next day. If that sounds unlikely, then you have forgotten the story of Ahab. Now the king's son, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. So it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent them to him at Jezreel. We can be so sure of our inheritance that we may forget a loophole that we might not have even considered. What if? Is the inheritance assured? Can it be lost? How can we know? Our text first comes from Colossians 1. It's verses 12 through 14 giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Paul says that in Christ, the Father has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He goes on to tell us of the riches of the glory of what God has done in Christ. The story is magnificent. The details are choice morsels of delight, and the hope is a blessed one. Well, that is unless you accept the premise that you can, in fact, lose 
your salvation. The joy of the guarantee then fades. The hope of salvation becomes only a hope of salvation. What if what Christ did was lacking something? Suppose there is some legal loophole which could jeopardize the inheritance. Then what? Imagine being one of the poor, uninformed, or willfully uneducated people who actually believes that he has to help God along in order to stay saved. But the problem with that idea is that if a person needs to do something or not do something in order to keep being saved, then it was never of grace and by faith. It is by default of works. Everybody see that? And if of works, it is not of Christ. Such is not the case, however. There are no loopholes in the law of God which declares a person justified, sanctified, and glorified. It is a done deal, and it is all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is to protect the inheritance. It is all 13 verses, the final 13 verses of the book of Numbers. Verse 1, now the chief fathers of the families. The translation is not correct. It says, and came near chiefs, the fathers of the families. The article is before fathers, not chiefs. This sets the stage for what is to be conveyed. The house of the fathers is the next division below the families. They are chiefs, the fathers of the families which are being referred to. The specificity is necessary for the passage to be properly understood, because a conflict has arisen which seems to put a previous law concerning tribal land possession in jeopardy. Verse 1 going on, of the children of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh. I won't hide it from you. What is presented here is confusing, but it is important for those who desire to be precise. What transpires in this passage concerning land belonging to the tribe of Manasseh. However, Manasseh has been divided into two halves. One half would reside on the eastern side of Jordan in Gilead, and one half would reside on the western side in Canaan. As this is dealing with land belonging to Machir, it would seem to involve land on the eastern side, outside of Canaan proper. This would seem to be so from what is recorded in Numbers 32. And the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and took it, and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. So Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he dwelt in it. However, this is not the case. Rather, the sons of Gilead, who are listed in Numbers 32, are named again in Joshua 17, in the division of the land for the half-tribe of Manasseh, who settled in Canaan. There it says this, There was also a lot for the tribe of Manasseh. For he was the firstborn of Joseph, namely for Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war. Therefore, he was given Gilead and Bashan. And there was a lot for the rest of the children of Manasseh, according to their families. For the children of Abiezer, the children of Helek, the children of Asriel, the children of Shechem, the children of Hefer, that name right there, Hefer, and the children of Shemida. These were the male children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, according to their families. Verse 3, but here it is, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terzah. And they came near before Eliezer the priest, before Joshua the son of Nun, and before the rulers, saying, 
the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. Therefore, according to the commandment of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among their father's brothers. Here's another one to pay attention to. Ten shares fell to Manasseh besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which were on the other side of the Jordan. Because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among his sons, and the rest of Manasseh's sons had the land of Gilead. So you can see, you have to go to Joshua to understand precisely what's going on. It was very complicated. It took a while to figure this out, but it all fell into place. The way that 10 shares are counted is first by counting the six named sons, Abietzer, Helek, Asriel, Shechem, Hefer, and Shemida. But as Hefer's son, Zelophehad, is dead, he is removed from the counting. And in his place are listed his five daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza. Thus, there are five plus five, or ten total shares, which will be given to the family of Gilead, west of the Jordan in Canaan. Now think of this. This land of Manasseh is big. It's like from here to Tampa, right? It's a big piece of land. Ten people are given those shares, and five of them are these girls. You wonder why people are going to get excited about the inheritance all of a sudden. There you go, okay? The inheritance of these five daughters is raised to the level of the family of their grandfather due to the death of their father. Each of these five noble and wise daughters received a one-tenth inheritance or a total of 50% of that which is named of the half-tribe of Manasseh in Canaan. The division of land for their great-great-grandfather Machir is on both sides of the Jordan, one half in Gilead and one half in Canaan. But it is his descendants from Hefer and through Zelophehad who are now referred to. It is they who are, verse 1 going on, of the families of the sons of Joseph. This note seems almost superfluous, doesn't it? The tribe in question is that of Manasseh, and so it doesn't seem necessary to mention the genealogy all the way up to Joseph, but it is. First, if this addition wasn't made, then there could be a later problem between Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. The word sons here is, in fact, plural. There are two sons of Joseph. However, they were adopted by Jacob and thus reckoned as his, but Someone might say that they are both sons of Joseph, and so this didn't actually apply between the two of them. This will be seen as incorrect in verse 5. Secondly, the name Joseph was given is based on the very words these men who have come forward will use. That was seen first in Genesis 30. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away, taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another. The word for shall add, which she exclaimed is Yasaf. It is the root of the name Joseph, or he shall add. There's actually two roots to the name. The first is taken away, Asaf. The second one is shall add, Yasaf, okay? It's to show that what they possess will be added to another tribe's possession while it is taken away from them. Naming their father here is undoubtedly to make an intentional connection concerning what is going on. Verse 1 continues, came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the chief fathers of the children of Israel. In this, there is no article before fathers. It says chiefs, fathers of the children of Israel. This then would probably be referring to the 70 designated as a ruling council or the chiefs of the named tribes of Israel. 
Following where and when the definite article is supplied is important to understand the details of what is being presented. It is a matter which must go to the very top of the governmental structure in Israel, because it is a matter which, by its very nature, cannot be handled without a bias at a lower level. It involves inheritance between tribes, which are already considered as permanent and fixed grants in perpetuity. Remember that? He said this land is fixed, and now all of a sudden something has called it into question. And so we've got to make sure that we get this detail right. Verse 2, and they said the Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel. This was recorded in Numbers 26, 52 through 56. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, to these the land shall be divided as an inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe, tribe is inserted there and it is incorrect. You saw that in a previous sermon. To a large, you shall give a larger inheritance. And to a small, you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to those who are numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot. They shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the lot, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller. But there is more to consider, verse 2 going on. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. This is exactly as it occurred, and as is recorded in Numbers 27. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. You shall surely give them possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. The words are spoken in this verse are in the singular to Moses. He says, Adoni, or my Lord. Thus, there is one person speaking for and on behalf of the whole. This person brings up a logical difficulty which must be presented before the land inheritances are granted or there could immediately be problems. What precipitated this is not known. It could be that one person simply thought it through after hearing the news about Zelophehad's daughters. Hey, these are girls, and they're going to get 50% of our land. And he suddenly says, wait, we got to get this figured out. Or it could be that one of the daughters is already being considered for marriage to someone, and the realization of the difficulty suddenly comes to light because of that. Whatever brought this to light, it cannot be left unaddressed due to the permanent rights of land grants to each tribe. That difficulty is now seen with the words which follow. Verse 3, now if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers, and it will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken from the lot of our inheritance. This is an interesting set of words. The irregular construction of the verse is noted by scholars, but it is acknowledged that the sense is clear nonetheless. First, two words for tribe are used. The first is shevet, which signifies a scepter. It indicates rule, coming from a word which signifies to branch off. One can think of those below the main tribe as branching off. The second word is mate. It comes from the word nata, also meaning to branch off. It is used to indicate support as a walking staff, and thus figuratively to indicate support of life, meaning bread which sustains. The use of the two words is probably intentional in order to say something like, if they are married to any of the sons of another authority of the children of Israel, their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the support into which they marry. Thus, the support for their tribe 
would be diminished. The reason for this is that the sons born to the women would be reckoned not as sons of Manasseh, but as sons of the tribe of the fathers. Therefore, the inheritance to the sons, meaning the land which is within the boundaries of Manasseh, would no longer belong to Manasseh. Everybody understand that? The name of the child goes through the father. The inheritance goes through the father. Nowadays, Jews don't do that. They use the mother because they were exiled. The land wasn't an issue. And so it's different now. But it was all through the Bible, through the father. If no sons were born to the father, then the rules of inheritance found in Numbers 27 would prevail. But that would be the exception, not the rule. However, as there is already a precedent of a father having daughters and no sons, it would be sure to arise from time to time. Eventually, the inheritance rights throughout Israel would become extremely complicated as land moved from one tribal inheritance to another. The term, the land of Judah, or the land of Zebulun, which is explicitly stated in Isaiah 9, right? The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and so on, it would no longer have the intended meaning that it once did. Further, this would then violate another precept which has already been laid down in the law. Verse 4, And when the jubilee of the children of Israel comes, the law of the jubilee is recorded in Leviticus chapter 25, with some specific details being conveyed in Leviticus chapter 27. The term jubilee comes from the Hebrew word which signifies a ram's horn. The reason for this name is because of what the blowing of this ram's horn signified. This is from Leviticus 25. And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee, the Yobel, to sound on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. The Yobel, or ram's horn, is only mentioned four times outside of Leviticus, here, and three times in Joshua. However, the three uses in Joshua refer not to this special event, but simply to the literal blowing of the ram's horn. Remember, they went around Jericho and they blew the Yobel, okay? In other words, apart from the instructions given in Leviticus, this here that you're looking at right now is the only time that the Jubilee is mentioned in Scripture. And more... This is not even referring to its actual occurrence, but only in a hypothetical possibility which could occur on the Jubilee. Verse 4 continues, Then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. Technically, the inheritance belonging to the daughter would transfer immediately to the tribe of the husband once the marriage took place. However, through other technical aspects of the law, it could potentially revert back to Manasseh. If there was a divorce before children were born, if there were no children in the marriage, or if the inheritance was purchased in some manner, it may return to Manasseh. But the normal cycle of life would say otherwise. But the law of the Jubilee says that all landed property was to revert to its original owner or to his legal heir. Any title to land which was not legally and successfully challenged would be confirmed. And because the title of the children of one of the daughters of Zelophehad could not be challenged, then regardless as to what happened to the land after they inherited it, at the Jubilee, it would become permanently theirs as the landed title holders, even though they were not of Manasseh. 
regardless as to whether Israel ever observed the Jubilee or not. The precepts which surrounded the Jubilee are what matter. And the precept is that the land of a tribe was never, never to transfer out of that tribe forever. To understand this from an imperfect example, I had to sit there on sermon typing day and think, how can I explain this so that you will get it? And it came to me. If the great state of Florida were to use its public funds to buy land in the less great state of, say, Hawaii, that land would still belong to Hawaii. The taxes owed to it would go to Hawaii. It would not become a part of Florida except in the sense of any other ownership by an individual, a company, or whatever. We could say a company that prints Bibles, right? They've got a company, they've got a building, they're printing Bibles. The great state of Florida buys that land. All of that becomes the property of the state of Florida. The Bible printing company, all of the Bibles and everything else. But the taxes keep going to Hawaii and the land belongs to Hawaii. Everybody got that? That's what's going on. The laws of Hawaii would still apply in the sale of that property to Florida. And they would have to be considered by the purchaser. With this understanding that a law is necessary in order to protect the permanent ownership of land granted by lot to a tribe, a law is needed for the security of that tribe to resolve this issue. Is anybody seeing what's going on yet? Okay, you will. Verse 5, then Moses commanded the children of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying... In Numbers 27, when this issue was first raised by the daughters of Zelophehad, it said, So Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. It is possible that this account in Numbers 36 actually happened at the same time as that account in Numbers 27, but it is recorded separately according to content, not as a chronology of events. Or it could be that Moses went in again to the Lord at this time without it being stated. Either way, Moses now gives a command based on the word of the Lord to the children of Israel. Verse 5 continues, what the tribe of the sons of Joseph speak is right. Ken, mate bene Yosef doberim. Rightly so, tribe, sons, Joseph speakings. Again, as before, the matter is elevated to the tribe of the sons of Joseph, or he shall add, rather than simply saying Manasseh. The word tribe here is singular. This could ostensibly be taken in one of two ways then. First, Joseph is a single tribe, and what the sons of that tribe have brought forward is correct. Or it could be that this single tribe of Joseph, which is comprised of two separate tribes, has brought forward a premise which is correct. The latter is certainly the case based on the adoption of the two sons by Jacob, based on the selection of Levi out of the tribes, and based upon the conducting of two census, which included the counting of both Ephraim and Manasseh as separate tribes. In other words, Manasseh is a separate tribe from Ephraim, despite both being sons of Joseph. But again, there is the subtle play on words which is being conveyed as well. Joseph means he shall add. The men here do not want their land being added at their expense to that of the other tribes, despite the meaning of the name of their forefather. Verse 6, this is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, let them marry whom they think best, but they may marry only within the family of their father's tribe. Ach, le mishpachat mate avihem tiyena lenashim. Surely to family of tribe of their father, they may become married. Verse 6 and verse 8 
are complicated. Most translations add in definite articles that are not found in the Hebrew. And scholarly comments say that this means they can only marry in the tribe and also only marry in the family of the father. This is not correct. They may marry anyone within the tribe. This will be seen as we go. In other words, instead of within the family of the father's tribe, it means within a family of the tribe of their father. This is so complicated and nobody, nobody translated it properly that I know of. Okay. Nobody. And the scholars all agreed with it's within the family and the tribe. Okay. And so what did I do? Because I am not a specialist in Hebrew. I called Sergio and I think they're watching today. If they are, we love you guys. They were a big help this past week because I had been practicing this now since nine weeks ago and thinking about it. And I said, I know this isn't correct. But I don't want to be imprecise on this. I want to make sure that you have exactly what is being conveyed. It didn't make any difference in the theology, but it does make a difference in what is being presented. And I want to make sure that what is presented, you will see. Okay? So, I called them, and I said, please, think about this, read it. And he said, you know what? I never in a million years would have, and that's an exaggeration, but he said he never would have thought of checking this particular precept. Okay? It's just something I want you to be rightly schooled in. And so they checked it out and they said, yes, in fact, it is translated this way. And why is that true? Because if not, then you've got a little bit of a difficulty with some verses we've already looked at and some verses that we're going to look at. Okay, not to beat that to death, but I want you to know that what you're being presented is in line and in accord with the Bible. They were not forced to marry anyone, but they could not marry outside of their tribe. Their inheritance was from their father Zelophehad, and his was from Manasseh, and therefore they had to remain within that tribe. The restriction is only imposed upon heiresses and not upon daughters in other circumstances. As stated earlier, this precept was a part of the law and would have been adhered to as such, even if Israel never celebrated a jubilee. The codes which were set for such an event would not have been violated. And you'll understand why in a minute. Such an occurrence is actually recorded in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 23, verse 22. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. The sons of Mali were Eliezer and Kish. And Eliezer died and had no sons, but only daughters. And their brethren, the sons of Kish, took them as wives. As seen earlier, there is nothing that says a state must buy land in another state. But the principle behind such a purchase would be binding if it did. The logical reason for this law continues to be explained with verse 7. So the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. That which was assigned by lot to the tribe was to forever remain joined to that tribe. The word translated here as keep is the word dabak. It means to cleave or be fastly joined together. It is the word used in Genesis chapter 2 when it says that a man would be joined to his wife and they would become one flesh. There was to be no separation between a tribe and its land forever. This precept here is why even today the land of Asher in Israel is noted as such and the land of Judah is noted as such and so on. There were specific prophecies made over the sons of Israel, which speak of the land of the sons of Israel. In order for them to be fulfilled, the land would have to remain within the tribe. Otherwise, those prophecies would have no value at all. Is everybody seeing the importance of this now? Okay, as an example, we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 33. 
Asher is most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. Your sandals shall be iron and bronze and your days so shall your strength be. By strictly maintaining these inheritances in accord with the word of the Lord through Moses, right now, right now in 2019 in Israel, a Christian oil company is in the traditional land of Asher drilling oil wells because he read that prophecy. This would not have been possible, nor many other prophecies that have already been made in the Bible if this was not adhered to in this chapter right now. Everybody got that? Okay. If they weren't in place, it would be chaos. Verse 8, And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife of one of the family of her father's tribe. The translation is misleading. It says, Le'echad mi mishpachat mate abiha, to one from family of tribe of her father. This rule only applies, as it says, to every daughter who possesses an inheritance. If this is the case, she was to marry within a family of her father's tribe. As he was of the tribe of Manasseh, they must marry someone descended from him. Thus, the family would be maintained in accord with the word of the Lord. This was, verse 8 continues, so that the children of Israel may each may possess the inheritance of his fathers. The land itself is governed by the tribe to which it belongs. Therefore, a female who is to inherit property had to maintain that tribe's property through marriage. This did not apply to women who were not set to inherit land. They were free to marry outside of tribe without restriction. Thus, it is seen that Elizabeth, who was of the daughters of Aaron, meaning of the tribe of Levi, and of the priestly class of Israel, was related to Mary, the mother of Christ Jesus. How their relationship was connected is unknown. It could be that the mother of Mary and the mother of Elizabeth were sisters descended from Aaron, but Mary's mother could have married a man of Judah. If so, then Mary would be reckoned as being of the tribe of Judah through her father. That is just one possible scenario for how the two could be related despite being reckoned to different tribes. It is through the father that the tribe and family are reckoned. And therefore, unless the inheritor is a male, these special restrictions came into play in order to protect the possession of the tribe. Verse 9, thus no inheritance shall change from one tribe to another, but every tribe of the children of Israel shall keep its own inheritance. This verse rewords what was stated in verse 7, confirming what was said there. The inheritance of the tribe would cleave to the tribe without fail, as long as these provisions were maintained. This was the intent of the year of Jubilee. But it would not have been possible without the addition of this provision now given. The thing about this precept is that it plays upon the greed of the human heart. Ingenious! Where countless precepts of the law were constantly violated by Israel and where there is not a single recording of a jubilee having been conducted in Israel showing that it probably was not carefully adhered to, admittedly, that's an argument from silence, the fact that land and thus wealth was at stake, it is certain that the precepts of this law now being given were never violated, never despite flagrant violations of almost every precept handed down to the people by the Lord through Moses, this is one of the laws that would have been meticulously watched over by the leaders of the land. 
Remember when we went through Leviticus 26 and the Lord says, do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that. And I went into the rest of the Old Testament and I showed where they didn't do what they should have done and they did what they shouldn't have done. They failed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They violated every one of the big 10 all through the Old Testament. This one thing was probably never violated because you got the rulers and they're saying, that's our land. You see, the greed of the human heart, the Lord knew how to handle this situation. And to get things started in this vein of obedience, we read verse 10. Just as the Lord commanded Moses, so did the daughters of Zelophehad. There's nothing stated in this law now or afterward about the possible effects and consequences of love. In other words, if one of these five daughters fell in love with a guy from Zebulun, could she have given up her inheritance and married him? The answer is probably yes. But it is not even addressed. What this passage is concerned with is integrity of the tribal and family inheritances. The matter here isn't simply stated as an act of obedience to the precept by the daughters of Zelophehad. In this, it sets the stage for the rest of the record of the Bible. Nothing is later recorded where there was some type of deviation from this precept right here. Verse 11, For Mala, Tirzah, Hogla, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to the sons of their father's brothers. The names of these five are recorded in the same order in Numbers 26.33, 27.1, and Joshua 17.3. However, in this listing right here in chapter 36, the names of Tirzah and Noah are exchanged in order. There's no reason given, but one commentator speculates that this is the order in which they were married. As this particular verse is speaking of marriage, that sounds like a satisfactory reason for the matter, and we will go with it. The word translated as father's brothers is dod. It means uncle. Thus, it means they married their cousins first or otherwise. Before I go on, the word dod also means beloved. Right over here on the wall, it says right there, Ani le dodi ve dodi li. I am to my beloved, and my beloved is to me. It's the same word, the uncle and the beloved, if that gives you any pictures of Christ. Okay? There is no prohibition for this in the law, and thus it was acceptable and proper to maintain the inheritance within the family. It would also mean that the inheritance of those particular men would be rather large. They would have been willing accomplices in such an endeavor. Verse 12, they were married into the families of the children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's family. For the third time, Joseph, or he shall add, is again named. This time it is in relation to the families of Manasseh, confirming again that the marriage was to take place within the single tribe, not within one of the two tribes descended from him. Nothing was to be taken away from he shall add, but that which was to be added to him would be through the development of the tribe from within or from without through marriages, which would not bring a liability to the inheritance rights of themselves or another tribe. From there, the words further define their marriages as Almate Mishpachat Avihem, over tribe of family their father. Without support, the NIV translates this as their inheritance remained in their father's tribe and clan. There is no and in the words. It may be a true statement because they married their uncle's sons, but the verse itself is concerned with the tribal inheritance of Manasseh only. The meaning of uncle 
is not defined first or otherwise. And based on Joshua 17, which I already read you, it is certainly otherwise. We'll talk about that again later. The precepts for protection of the inheritances have been laid down and obedience to those precepts has been noted. From there, we come to the closing verse of the passage of the chapter and of the book of Numbers. Verse 13 finishes with, aren't you excited? Isn't this a wonderful book of the Bible? I'm telling you. These are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded the children of Israel by the hand of Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Just so you know, anytime you read that, the words across from are inserted. It simply says Jordan, Jericho. When you think of the typology, it makes a lot more sense, okay? The words here are a mixture of that which was seen in Leviticus 26.46 and of those which closed out Leviticus one chapter later. Here's what it said there. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. And then these are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. The Lord spoke out the commands, and he made judgments which were commanded to the children of Israel, meaning all people of the nation by the hand of Moses. This means that what is recorded was written as it was spoken. It is thus an expression of the Lord in written form for all to read, understand, and apply to their lives. What this verse conveys speaks, of course, of the contents of this chapter but they are an overall summary of everything that has been conveyed to the people since their arrival at this spot. And the spot itself speaks of the coming Messiah. The Lord is the source of what is presented. We'll go back and read this again, uh, which the, the judgments which the Lord commanded by the children of Israel, by the hand of Moses, in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan across from Jericho. Okay, the Lord is the source of what is presented. The words come by the hand of Moses, or he who draws out. Thus it anticipates Christ. The hand is what accomplishes things. It is given to man to complete the tasks set before him just as Christ was sent to accomplish the tasks set before him by the Father. It is he who draws out the will of the Lord and who embodies that will, pictured by Moses. The words then say, in the plains of Moab. The word plains is arbot, which speaks of deserts. That comes from arav, meaning to grow dark. But it is identical with the word arav, meaning surety. Because a surety or pledge covers over something. Arav is the basis for the magnificent word Erevon used in Genesis chapter 38 and which speaks in type of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Moab means from father. And thus it is in the place of sureties from father. Anybody seeing a picture yet? Which is said to be by the Jordan. As we have seen, Jordan means descender. It pictures Christ who descended from heaven to earth to redeem man. We're going to go through this again so you understand it perfectly. He is the surety from the Father that this law drawn out from the Lord will be fulfilled. And finally, it says, across from Jericho or place of fragrance. To pass over Christ is to pass into the promise of heaven, the place of the fragrance of the knowledge of God in Christ. Like when Leviticus closed out at Sinai, Each word of the verse here anticipates Christ and his mission to bring restoration between God and man. But before his coming, these statutes and judgments would be given in order to anticipate him and also be fulfilled by him. Giving thanks to God who has qualified us 
to be partakers of the inheritance. It is a done deal through our Lord Jesus, and of losing this, there is just no chance. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, and he has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Without Christ, there would be no hope. We would be in a mess. But because of Christ, assurances of glory rain down from above. In him we have redemption through his blood, and in him there is forgiveness of all of our sins. So come to Christ and be immersed in the cleansing flood. Come to Christ, who for you, the victory, he wins. Our second thought today, restoration, not loss at the Jubilee. What must be considered when reading this final chapter of Numbers is, what is the main purpose of what we're reading? The answer is, as has been seen throughout this marvelous book, to discover Christ and what he would do. The final verse of the chapter has shown that to us. Everything in that verse spoke in veiled terms of what God would do in and through Christ. In this chapter, the preservation of the land within the tribes was designed to protect the state of those families and tribes. If mixture was allowed in, the defined lines leading to Messiah would be mixed and suspect. But to ensure to each tribe that the land of the tribe remained consistent, these laws were given. That way, when Messiah came, it would be clear and without question that he was of such a given place and that he belonged to such a given tribe. By closing out this marvelous book, filled with typological and pictorial hints of Christ within the precepts of this chapter, that would remain possible. Remember, it says he was born where? Where was Christ born? Bethlehem. No, that belongs to Zebulun. Remember this daughter? She married this guy, and now Bethlehem belongs not to Bethlehem and Judah, but Bethlehem and Zebulun, right? No, that never happened. It says Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Because of Christ, this had to be maintained, okay? Outside of ensuring the inheritances, the two other main points of what was seen in this chapter are the noting three times of Joseph, or he shall add, and of the mentioning of the year of Jubilee as the point in which no hope of retaining the inheritance would remain. The idea of an inheritance is mentioned 17 times in this one chapter. It is the main subject of everything that is conveyed. Adding in the name of Joseph was because of what his name, he shall add, signifies. You have to go back and watch that sermon. No, I'll explain it. At his birth, it was seen that the account pictured the taking away of man's reproach, that word asaf, meaning his sinful state, but that Christ would do it for both Jew and Gentile. Thus, he shall add. Christ is the one who doubles through his work because it is effective for all, not just those under the law. The stress on Joseph here is to remind us of that. Mentioning the Jubilee means that we need to remember the significance of the Jubilee as it points to Christ. The Jubilee is based on God's provision of Sabbaths. The Sabbath was a time where people would rest and not work. That was the first marker in an amazing and intricate cycle of life. The Sabbath day was given to be the great reminder of God's creative and redemptive hand among the people. Every aspect of the Sabbath, as was detailed in Exodus and Leviticus, gave insights into what Christ would do. From the Sabbath day, the next marker in that cycle was to be the Sabbath month, the seventh month, which detailed the three fall feasts of the Lord. In order, they pictured Christ's birth into humanity, his atoning death, and his dwelling among and in his people. After that, the next great marker was the Sabbath year. 
it anticipates a time when the Lord would tend to the people's needs apart from any work. They could rest in him and find that he would provide for them apart from their effort. That's the millennial reign of Christ. Remember? I don't know if you remember that from that sermon, but there you go. From there, those Sabbath years were to accumulate into the great year of Jubilee, where debts would be released, properties would be restored, the land would produce on its own, and captives would be set free. A total restoration of all things was prefigured in the great year of Jubilee. That year of Jubilee is reflective of the words of Paul concerning the position of believers in Jesus Christ. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And yet that position in Christ for us now is only anticipatory as a taste of what will be realized in its fullness at the restoration of all things. That is described in Revelation 21, verse 5. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So understand, the seventh day Sabbath acknowledges the Lord's creation and redemption. The seventh month anticipates his incarnation, atoning death, and dwelling in his people. The seventh year Sabbath looks ahead to his millennial reign, and the year of Jubilee anticipates total restoration of what was lost at the beginning. That is why this is brought into this particular passage right now. Everything leading up to the Jubilee looks to the Lord and his work in the grand plan of redemption. Each step is fulfilled in Jesus until we are again in the presence of God. However, If the inheritance can be confounded, then the success of that great plan is put into question. That is what is being seen here. There is, until a law is given to correct it, a chance that this inheritance can be lost for God's people. If it can be lost, and if that is solidified through the year of Jubilee, then it is lost forever. And so, in order to ensure that this could not come about, does everybody see why the Jubilee was instructed before this passage, everything in the Bible comes in a proper order to show us what's going on. To ensure that this could not come about, the chapter here is given today. A seeming difficulty is presented, and the Lord explains how to remedy it, which is that the female inheritor may only marry within the tribe of the father. The inheritance is granted through faith in Christ. Does everybody agree with that? Okay, that is spoken of by Paul and Peter, both of them. In him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You wonder why it says in the plains of Moab, Arav, the basis of the word Aravon. Now you know, he is the guarantee. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And Peter says the same basic thing in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved for you in heaven who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Think of the Jubilee, the last time. There and elsewhere, the inheritance is spoken of and the surety of it is conveyed. The word used by Paul in Ephesians 1 and translated as guarantee is what? 
Arabon. It is the same word found in Genesis 38, Erevon, and which comes from Arav, meaning surety, which we just looked at a moment ago. However, the chapter now speaks of a loophole, which could jeopardize the inheritance of God's people. Is it a guarantee or is it not? Paul says it's a guarantee, but is it? In order to correct this seeming deficiency, the right of marriage is brought in, stating the limitations on it to ensure that the inheritance cannot be lost by marriage. In the Bible, a betrothal, a betrothal confirms a marriage. Remember that? We've already gone through the betrothal. It confirms the marriage even before it happens. Why did God put that before this chapter? Now you know. As we saw in Numbers 30, the betrothed husband has the rights over his spouse to confirm or annul vows and the like. Right? We've all made a vow, haven't we? Are you seeing what's going on? She is bound to him in a permanent bond once the betrothal is made. This is what Paul then speaks of for those who now possess the inheritance. You and me, if we have called on Christ here. Woo! For I am jealous with you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The betrothal confirms it. The possession cannot pass away. It cannot. He is of Judah. He is the Christ, the Messiah, and we are united to him. We are betrothed. It cannot pass away. He has the rights over the vows, and they cannot be annulled. He has made the decision. He has sealed us with the guarantee, the seal of the Holy Spirit, the Erevon. For the believer, the inheritance is given. It has been promised with a seal as our guarantee, and it has been assured once and forever through our betrothal to Jesus Christ. We are the female bride this is speaking of. The consummation of that is simply a formality of which we now await. The guarantee has been made, and the inheritance is, here it is, not two ever, not three ever, it is forever secured for the people of God. The chapter today anticipates the doctrine known as eternal salvation, where there are seeming loopholes in any person's salvation and the granting of the inheritance, the Bible completely closes them up through Christ. What he has done is sufficient to save, but even more what he has done and who he is in relation to us is our guarantee that we are saved and that we will remain that way. If there was another note and a point of rejoicing that could surpass the idea right here, and which could have ended the book of Numbers, I don't know what it could have been. The patterns and the pictures of what Christ would do have been many, but to know that what he has done for us in them is assured for all eternity is like sprinkles on top of the ice cream in the cone. The chapter in the book close out with the words that this account came from the Lord by the hand of Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. As we saw, every word of that speaks of what God would do in Christ. I'm going to go through it again. The Lord is the source. By the hand of Moses or he who draws out anticipates Christ because Christ is the right hand of God who accomplishes the tasks set before him by the Father. He draws out the will of the Lord and embodies that will. In the plains of Moab, speak of the pledge or the surety, meaning the giving of the Holy Spirit who is from Father, which is the meaning of Moab. 
This was said to be by the Jordan, meaning the descender, the Lord Jesus. I've said that to you at least in five or six sermons, that the Jordan pictures Christ. Sergio picked up on it and he added it into that video that we watched a couple weeks ago, that marvelous video. You know what happened yesterday? I just left IHOP. I just left IHOP and I was driving home. I hate to give pictures without being able to say this points to this, but I was driving home and I was listening to the Bible as we all should do when we're driving, okay? And as I was listening to that, these words were said, and I never would have made this connection ever if this passage before us today wasn't today's passage. Here's what it says in Ephesians 4, 9, and 10. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. I've said all along, it, Hermon pictures heaven, the Dead Sea pictures where Christ went into the pit of death. He descended. And that right there, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. There you go. There you've got your picture from the Old Testament confirmed in the New. I'm glad to have had that so you can pen that in your Bible that this is picturing Christ of the Jordan in the Old Testament. Anyway, wonderful stuff there. I'll read this again. That was said to be by the Jordan, meaning the descender, the Lord Jesus. And in passing through him, one is in Jericho, the place of fragrance. Remember that Christ is the fragrance of God, okay? We went through that verse before. To pass through Christ is to pass into the promise of heaven, the place of fragrance of the knowledge of God in Christ, as Paul says. God, in his infinite wisdom, took us through pictures of rejection of him by his people to their sentencing of them by him to die in the wilderness to pictures of simply looking to him in faith in that wilderness and being saved from the viper remember the serpent on the staff and through so many other varied hints of temporary difficulty and yet anticipated glory and through it all he brought them right to the border of the land of promise right to the descender himself meaning jesus christ and along with them he also brought along the gentile people of the world all are standing at the border and all are welcome to come in. And to finish off his anticipatory look into the inheritance, he ends with a note of surety that the inheritance is, it will be, and it will never pass away. One must pity those who believe they can lose their salvation. They are stuck in a hopeless condition of constant failure intermixed with a trembling but uncertain hope. The name Salofahad means shadow of fear. Because of his family situation, there was a shadow of fear hanging over the inheritance of God's people. But in Christ, that shadow of fear is forever removed. Christ did not come to provide us with eternal insecurity, and he did not come to offer us an inheritance that can be lost. Rather, we are betrothed to him to ensure that the inheritance will never pass away. This is the message of God in Jesus Christ, and it is a marvelous, glorious part of his superior word. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Wasn't that a wonderful passage to end the book of Numbers on? I'm telling you, absolutely unbelievable. It just, I, you know, I picked up that and I thought, Lord, what are you telling us when I first read that and before I started typing the sermon? And I got to that first thing and it was so complicated and I was just so stressed. And about five or six hours later, I was sending messages to Sergio and saying, Sergio, this is glorious. This is glorious. It is marvelous. And it is because it's Jesus Christ and it is his promise to the people of the world. Yes, 
This is for the people out there that say, I really screwed up. I did something terrible today and God cannot forgive me of what I've done. He's already forgiven you. It doesn't matter that you've done it. Pull yourself up by your boots, bootstraps or whatever the term is and look to Christ because he has already given you the forgiveness and he has made it eternal. He chose these five girls who lost their father and very soon between the time that they left Sinai and the time that it happened here, if you remember that sermon, he took their father purposefully to make a picture for all of us. Now you think of their heartbreak at losing their father, but think of what we know because of what he has put into this passage and rejoice in the surety. When somebody wants to debate you on Facebook about can you lose your salvation, say the Old Testament answers the question. You can debate those New Testament verses all day long, taking them out of context, by the way, but the Old Testament answers it. And send them a link to this sermon. Praise God for his salvation in Christ. But that is only guaranteed to those who have called on Christ. And so to close out the book of Numbers, I would be negligent in my duties if I didn't tell the people listening to this sermon that if you have never simply received Jesus Christ, you cannot come into God's presence. You will be cast away forever. You have to believe that he died for your sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And if you believe that, if you believe that in your heart, that God did those things for you, you will be saved. That is what God asks you to do is simply believe and to receive that gift. So please do that today. You will be saved and you will have an eternal hope and surety that God has accepted you because he has betrothed you to Jesus Christ. All right, there you go. Closing verse, Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. That's pretty wonderful. Next week, don't be a clod. So to you, I saith. it's entitled the word of God, the basis of our faith. That'll be our first doctrine sermon. I have to do this. I've got a friend that, uh, uh, you know, I, I go from a big book to a small book of the Bible. And this guy has been pestering me for years. I need you to do 10 doctrine sermons. And I said, I don't want to do it. I want to stick to the Bible. But this guy does a lot for the superior word. He's done it for many years. He's the reason why we have a prophecy update. He's the reason why we have a website. He has built that website and he has maintained it every single day. And he reads every single thing that I publish and checks for errors every day. He does this for us and he won't let me know his real name. All he says is I'm Mike. That's all I know him by. He won't let me send him anything. I've tried to send him things. He won't let me do it. But I owe him this. We all do, and we're all going to learn a little bit of theology, so we're going to get away from direct Bible for about 10 weeks, and we're going to understand some doctrine. I'll tell you what doctrine means. We've got the Word of God. We've got the sovereignty of God. We've got the Trinity. We've got the deity of Jesus Christ. We've got the humanity of Jesus Christ. We've got all kinds of things along those lines, and you will be well-schooled in this, and it's something you should do once a year anyway, okay? So there you go with that. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in the desert wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there and he's carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay. That's the last time I'm ever going to say those words to you. The next time we do another book of the Bible, starting in Deuteronomy, you're going to get a new set of words. So that's it. You've heard that for the last time. Now, before I, uh, 
ask you a question, which comes before the poem. Uh-huh. I want to thank somebody. He's in Ireland. He's a beardy guy, but he has faithfully painted a painting for every single sermon of the book of Numbers. He's been doing it since we first hooked up in the middle of Exodus. He's never missed a Saturday, even with vertigo, even with terrible migraines, even with pains and troubles in his head and heart. He has never missed a painting. And so, Doug Callerson, I want to thank you for that. I tell you, people look at those things and they click onto the sermons, not because of Charlie Garrett's ugly face being on the video, but because of the magnificent work that he does. And we got that one right there from him just a while ago through Jack and Beth. And it's just beautiful. My daughter walked in and the first thing she said, I hadn't seen her in how long? And she walks in and she says, that is incredible. (laughs) I thought she was talking about my beard, but she was looking in that direction. Okay, I got a question for you. Here's a Maserati. This is going to be very complicated. I I want you to know you had to have listened and paid attention during the sermon. Okay, I noted that in verses 6 and 8, they are translated and commented on inaccurately, saying that the inheritance must remain within the tribe and the family within the tribe. I also said that Joshua 17 dispels this. And I even underline things for you. I want you to tell me why this is so. I'm going to take you back to Joshua 17, and it dispels that notion. Why is it not within the family and the tribe? Okay, so let me go here. There was also a lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph, namely for Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war. Therefore, he was given Gilead and Bashan. And there was a lot for the rest of the children of Manasseh. Whoops, turned too many pages. According to their families, for the children of Abiezer, the children of Helek, the children of Asriel, the children of Shechem, the children of Hefer, and the children of Shemida, these were the male children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, according to their families. But Zelophehad had the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters. And these are the names of the daughters. And it goes down there and it gives them. Okay, then down in verse 5 it says, Ten shares fell to Manasseh besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which were on the other side of the Jordan. How does that show you that it goes to the tribe and not to the family only? I'm talking about the family mentioned, Hefer. It's because of how I explained those words to you. You remove Hefer and you add in the five daughters. You wouldn't do that if Zelopha had had brothers and sisters. He had to be a single child because there's 10 shares and they're given five shares each. Therefore, it is not of the family. It never speaks of that. It says of the tribe of Zebulun, the tribe of this and the tribe of that. So you understand the logic? Zelopha had had no daughters, but he also had no sons. That's why I said when I explained to you that the word uncle can be first or otherwise, it has to be otherwise because it went up to the inheritance of Hefer and not of Zelophehad. Okay, everybody got that? Little technicality in the word of God, but that's why it was so important to me that I got Sergio and Rhoda's translation of that passage because it would have caused me grief and I don't want to have grief and then you would have had something in your theology that would have been wrong even if it didn't matter to you. Okay, I don't want to do that to the word of God. My brain is going to that. I said, okay, all the father lineage died at the dismantling of the... That's right, because all of, in AD 70, all of the records of the Jews were destroyed with the temple. And so no father lineages were left. So there's no inheritance. There's no inheritance of the land of Israel, okay? 
However, what does that also tell us? That tells us one thing. Well, that's right. There's only one way to go, which is the inheritance of Christ. It tells us that. Okay, and that tells the Jews that. They need Christ as well. That's a very profound thing you just said. It tells us there's only one way to go, and that's to Jesus. But it tells you one more thing, because there is a genealogy of a Jew left. It's recorded twice. It's recorded in Matthew, and it's recorded in Luke chapter 3. And guess what it says? It says that David bought the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite with a certain amount of money. Therefore, the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite belongs to David. And David, his line, possesses that. And there is one genealogy of David recorded in human history that is left, and that is that of Jesus Christ. And therefore, he is the possessor of the Temple Mount. So when he comes back to Israel and to his people, there will be no dispute concerning the Temple Mount and his right to sit on the throne in the Temple of God and reign for a thousand years. That's what that tells you. I got a poem here for you. The Inheritance of Zelophehad. Now the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead, yes, these ones, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Joseph's sons, came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders with words to tell to the chief fathers of the children of Israel. And they said, the Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance by lot, dividing among one another to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance to the daughters of Zelophehad, our brother. Now, if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers. This just doesn't sit well. And it will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry, so it will be taken from the lot of our inheritance. Thus, our borders will vary. And when the jubilee of the children of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added, as we now describe, to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry, so their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of our father's tribe. Then Moses commanded the children of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, saying, What the tribe of the sons of Joseph speaks is right. Hear now the words to you I am conveying. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, As to you I now describe, let them marry whom they think best, but they may marry only within the family of their father's tribe. So the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe, for every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers to where the Lord did first describe. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel, such shall be the stance, shall be the wife of one of the family of her father's tribe, so that the children of Israel each may possess his father's inheritance. Thus, no inheritance shall change hands from one tribe to another, but every tribe of the children of Israel shall keep its own inheritance. It is by father and not by mother." Just as the Lord commanded Moses, so did the daughters of Zelophehad, obeying the Lord's druthers. For Mala, Tirza, Hogla, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to the sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the families of the children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, as it was said to be. And their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's family. These are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded the children of Israel, as we now know by the hand of Moses in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. 
Without you to direct our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily, it apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. And Lord God, thank you for this wonderful book, Numbers. What a marvel to have studied it. Into every detail possible, we took a look. And to you, our thanks and praise we now submit. Hallelujah to Christ our Lord. Hallelujah for Numbers. A marvelous part of your superior word. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, what an honor it is to sit and listen to your word and to hear it and to meditate on it and to apply it to our lives and to let it enrich us daily. And may it be so that for the year ahead, which is just around the corner, that we will each day as the year unfolds also open your word and open it up and take it and read it and apply it to our lives and pursue it with reckless abandon, just pursuing it without any care of anything else in our life except to seek out Jesus and to understand him more and more as each day goes by so that we will be accomplished and professional Christians following you and telling others about the glory which Christ has displayed in our lives. May it be so, Lord. Give us a hunger for this wonderful word. May it be so. And we pray this in his exalted, glorious, beautiful, and wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Was it a good way to end the book of Numbers? Oh, yeah. The Lord did good. Thank you, Lord. And Charlie helped. What's that? And Charlie helped. I helped. I helped just kind of read it a little bit. I'm so appreciative of Sergio and Rhoda, you know, with their, with their Hebrew experience. Yeah, I can read it, and I can understand it to some extent, but when I see something that's difficult and I think, that's not right, I'm still not going to say that's not right. Because if I do, and I'm unqualified, then you are now going to have unqualified information. I can understand it, and I was sure I was right, but I wanted to make double sure by having somebody that actually can form those words and went to school and understands it. And when they came up with their conclusion, they sent me the email, and I said, that's it. Praise the Lord. And I knew it was the case. I know it because the rest of the passage says it as well. They married within the tribe and it never mentions the family. But that is an argument from silence, which I do not want to make. So anyway, here we go. <laughs>